Hello, everyone. Welcome to the PyWrite podcast. It's been quite a while. The guest we have on the PyWrite podcast today needs no introduction. It is Jason Choi, the man himself, ex-Spartan general partner, founder of the Block Crunch podcast, the Block Crunch Substack, and longtime angel in the crypto space. Uh, Jason Choi has recently partnered up with Wangarian to found Tangent, an angel collective. And I'm delighted to have him here on the podcast to uh, learn more about the uh, Angel Collective and the um, the, pro- the thought process behind that and some of his theses and his thoughts on the crypto space going forward. Hello, Jason. Hey, Bart. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to have you. Uh, it's been quite a while that we've spoken uh, since. So let's start with your latest venture. So Tangent. I think a lot of the players in the crypto space will be interested to know what exactly is Tangent. Um, so uh, it would be great if you can t- walk us through what is that and uh, how did you and Wangarian come up with this idea? Yeah, so I think the most app analogy, though not perfect, is an uh, angel syndicate. So we are a group of operators, you know, ex-investors and founders in the space who have a lot of experience either investing in or building out uh, successful protocols across all the major verticals in crypto. And we're all investing our own capital. So I think it's important to define Tangent by what it is not. So we're not a venture fund. We don't raise outside capital. We don't have one centralized managed pool of capital where we just deploy into as many projects as possible. We're not an incubator. So we're not helping new founders build products and then taking you know 20% of the companies up front. And we're also not an accelerator in the sense that we're not spraying into 400 companies a quarter uh, in each cohort and give them a generalized curriculum. What we are is a very hands-on collective of friends who are investing together in a very small number of companies. So only three to five per quarter and then dedicating our time and advice and insight and network to all of these companies and making sure that they succeed. Okay, that's pretty interesting. Can we uh, go through a bit of the team? Um, I would let you do the driving here. Um, tell us the, the, the illustrious group of people that you have assembled in your team. And how did you come up with this idea? Yeah, for sure. So I think when we assembled the team, uh, we really wanted to have some of the best investors, or sorry, some of the best founders that we've worked with before or we followed for a long time uh, in each of the major uh, verticals. So right now we have six mentors that are co-investing with myself and Wangarian. So we have Gabby Dazon, who is obviously the co-founder of Yield Guild Games, the largest Web3 gaming guild and one of the pioneers in Web3 games. Um, so if you saw the rise of Axie Infinity, Gabby was right there at the very beginning as well. Um, so he has a lot of insights to bring about games. Um, and then on the DeFi front, uh, we have Sam Kazmian, who's the founder of Frax Protocol, which is actually uh, probably the only algorithmic stablecoin that has really worked and remained stable because of the fractional model. Um, and actually previously, he was the founder of Everypedia as well. So he has a lot of experience uh, building products, not just in DeFi, but outside. Um, and also another uh, DeFi founder that we have is Tasha. Uh, so Tasha was the co-founder of uh, Alpha uh, Finance, which recently pivoted to Alpha Venture DAO, uh, which focuses a lot on incubating uh, projects in DeFi and in NFTs. So she has a lot of expertise in terms of how to scale a DAO correctly and how to manage a protocol that has hundreds of millions of dollars in TVL. Um, and then we also have Zero X Maki, who obviously was instrumental to um, the rise of one of the first anonymous uh, DeFi protocols that gained traction, which is Sushi Swap. And he's currently a part of the Layer Zero team. Um, so he's helping out uh, a lot on the uh, infrastructure side. 
And then we finally, we have two more uh, incredibly um, incredibly experienced people in the space. So we have State, who is anonymous, um, anonymous uh, operator in the space. He, previously, he was uh, working on governance at Aave, and now he's working on a mechanism design at PseudoSwap, which is one of the more uh, dynamic and interesting protocols in NFTs to, to come about, I think, in the past year or so. Um, and then finally, uh, we recently added Mabel, who is a personal friend of mine. So Mabel used to be a partner at Multicoin Capital, and she recently left uh, to join Stepin, which is the most popular uh, fitness app in Web3 as their chief revenue officer. So all of these people are incredibly experienced across DeFi, NFTs, DAOs, uh, gaming, and consumer applications. So we're really, really excited to be able to kind of co-invest with them and work with them. That is amazing. So I'd like to know if, um, in your opinion, there are uh, edges and advantages to being a retail or an angel as opposed to an organized fund. Uh, given that you have experiences in both, um, would love to hear what you have to say about that. What do you think? Yeah, so with funds, I think a lot of the game has evolved into asset collection. Um, so given the rise of crypto, we've seen a lot of interest from just LPs wanting to invest in different funds. Um, so what that translates into uh, is increasingly bigger and bigger funds just to absorb this demand. But at the same time, there simply isn't enough uh, development in this space to warrant that much capital. There is a lot of stuff happening in this space, but I do think the pace of capital flowing into the space has outgrown the pace of development. So as a result of that, we're starting to see seed rounds that were uh, you know, raising at 100, 200 million type of valuation before anything was raised. And I do think a lot of the returns at larger funds are going to be crowded out. Um, so we started seeing that you know late last year already. Um, so uh, I think that's a little bit concerning in the short term, but in the long term, I think it's good for the space that we have a lot of capital flowing in to support the talent. Um, but what I enjoy uh, the most is actually being extremely hands-on with founders, right? So, and it's very hard to do that at a much larger fund setting. So I, I think we're really fortunate that we're still able to do that at Spartan because uh, we have a very high capability team and uh, and we actually invest very thematically. So we only invested in DeFi and then we only invested in gaming. So we're able to really tap into this networks and add value. But I do foresee that for a lot of the other funds out there, as they get bigger, it will be harder to support earlier stage companies uh, as they get bigger. So um, I thought, okay, there will probably be a market gap where early stage uh, founders, especially people who are not just building in DeFi or NFTs or gaming, sort of like these popular verticals, but people trying to do something completely new, they're going to find it very hard to get support from uh, credible investors. So uh, we wanted to kind of step up and create this new structure to be extremely accommodating to early stage founders and to be open to experimental ideas that maybe uh, funds with a strong mandate and, and you know strict LPs might not be open to. So that, that's basically the philosophy um, for how we started and then it kind of evolved along the way. Amazing. So as you recall, I'm sure in the last cycle, there was um, when the times are bad, there were quite there was quite a lot of hated hatred towards uh, VCs, angels, investors, basically anybody who is deploying capital and who doesn't know how to code. Occasionally, you'll get stung by some long Twitter thread claiming how you're insert epithet here. So what do you think is the greatest value add investor can provide to a project? What do you have to say against these naysayers? So I definitely feel that there are some uh, uh, there are some uh, benefits and advantages and that a VC can bring to to a team. For example, cloud uh, color um, 
I mean, people can't look at everything all at once and obviously connections and credibility. What do you think? Yeah, so I think it depends on the stage. So I'll focus on the early stage first because that's where I operate. Um, so I think the major thing that an investor can bring is its distribution. So that means a network of hundreds of companies in this space, of uh, providers in this space. So uh, we can connect you to lawyers that we've worked with and personally vetted before. We can connect you to uh, talent um, agencies that we've worked with and vetted before. We can connect you to uh, talent in this space that are maybe transitioning between one of the hundreds of companies that we've worked with or uh, invested in or partnered with or vetted before. Um, so I think having massive networks is incredibly important for investors to add any type of value. So to give you an example, right? So for instance, one of the uh, companies that I invested in as a small angel called Utopia Labs was starting a payroll solution for DAOs. Um, and when the founders came in the space, they were very Web2 focused, right? So they came from like Facebook, Instagram type of background. Now, one of the founders there, Price actually gave up an offer from Robinhood to, to jump into Web3. Uh, but at that time, the Web3 network was quite weak. So I jumped in as an angel and basically helped introduce them to uh, most of the DAOs that we've worked with before and onboarded, I think, probably a dozen or so customers. Um, and that helped bootstrap the initial user base um, and you know add in the team's work ethic. I think that, they, that really took them really far. And they were able to close around with Paradigm, uh, I think, just within a year of them launching. So that's the type of value add that I think early stage investors can bring, which is helping you bootstrap from zero to one, get you the first customers. Um, and then when it comes to the later stage, I think um, founders tend to rely on investors a little bit less, right? When, once, when you get to the series A or series B stage, if you're still leaning very hard on your investors, there might be something wrong with your internal processes. So investors tend to be a little bit hands-off in the later stage, but the most impactful things are usually decision-making oriented. So uh, I think the most important thing an investor can do in a later stage, which is to paraphrase uh, Kyle Sumani from Multicoin, is to convince the founder that they're wrong uh, in terms of some major strategic direction. Um, you know, occasionally they can still make some introductions here and there and maybe uh, help to connect them to the decision makers at large companies or exchanges or so. Um, but it tends to be a little bit lighter touch at the, at the, lower sta at the later stages. Um, you have a very illustrious team working with you together. So I'm sure like as a founder and as people who have actually put time to build things, they see, well, they definitely see things that we outsiders or users or retailers don't see. So they see problems in building the project. They see, they, they have to deal with these problems, they have to solve these problems. And often, and of course, um, that kind of experience is very valuable to new um, uh, projects that you invest in. Do you uh, have any uh, stories of how uh, some of your teammates and some of your partners uh, went through in solving some really difficult problems? And what, uh, what are some lessons that you want to uh, give out to uh, future applicants to your angel collective or just uh, people building in the space? Stories and advice, yeah. problems to avoid. Yeah, for sure. So uh, I think one of the first projects or for first uh, projects that we kind of invested in when we we're still th still in our stealth mode, just informally investing together as a bunch of friends, was a project called Voyage. And they were at that time trying to build a um, play to own um, protocol. So they were trying to create a mechanism where you can have in-game mortgages for P2E games, where as people play uh, Axie Infinity and they earn Axie rewards, uh, those rewards go to automatically purchase an Axie for them so they, they, they can become owners. Um, so we helped them refine that idea. We connected them to one of our mentors, Gabby, 
uh, who's a co-founder of YGG. And uh, in turn, he gave them a lot of in-depth product feedback about what users actually want. And we connected them to uh, over a dozen guilds that we've worked with before. And from all of those kind of user research information uh, interviews, we were able to find out that, um, okay, the market is actually very, very small for in-game mortgages, right? There's actually not that many people who are playing just to own an NFT. But there was a demand at that time for credit um, from guilds, right? Guilds have way more waitlisted scholars uh, than they have supply. So they want to actually expand their balance sheet by uh, by borrowing. But there wasn't a lot of places that were lending to these guilds. So that actually helped them pivot the entire business model just from those, you know, dozen or so user uh, interviews and that conversation with Gabby. So that's the type of, you know, high touch approach that we try to bring to every portfolio. Um, and in terms of, you know, general advice to founders that are, you know, applying to be part of Tangent, it really, really helps to have warm referrals. So um, I think this is also a test of resourcefulness and and um, and also uh, determination. If you're able to kind of find out someone who can vouch for you or someone that maybe any of us mentors in the collective have worked with or are in touch with before and get them to vouch for you, that would really help you go a long way. Um, and, you know, initially we were thinking, it, it's just going to make us too exclusionary, right? If we only allow people who have, you know, some somehow have maybe one or two degree separation from us. But then we realized that we've seen so many examples of founders that have zero network before, but they're somehow still managed to uh, get referrals to uh, one of us and, and get invested in by one of our maybe previous funds. So it, it's more of a test for the founder's resourcefulness as well. So uh, that's something that I really stand by. Amazing. So I want to talk a little bit more about resourcefulness and uh, experience and uh, knowledge, because um, I believe this is your second or third cycle uh, in crypto. So uh, this is just my um, my first cycle. This is my first bear, proper bear that I've um, gone through. And what I've realized is that um, a lot of people just leave. And when they when they're gone, either because they've made it or they're disillusioned or they just get tired or burnt out, they bring along with them their knowledge and their experience. And you sometimes hear this when things happen. Like say, for example, when Terra imploded, people, some people, some OG were like, we've already been th through this before. We've seen this many, many times, but no worries. Next time in the next cycle, we'll see this again because people just forget or the people who've seen stuff, they just leave. So uh, I suppose the question here is that, um, as somebody who has been here for quite a while, how do you think that value add and that experience might change in the coming cycle? And um, what would you caution founders in the coming cycle as things keep on moving, as the tectonic plates of crypto starts to um, evolve beyond our um, what we're accustomed to in the last cycles? Yeah, so that's where I think founder market fit really comes in. Uh, that's something we care a lot about is whether the founder is really made for the specific market. So in the last uh, kind of DeFi summer, um, you know, after DeFi sizzled out and NFT started coming in, we started seeing a lot of founders that were very into DeFi or building DeFi protocols start to, uh, you know, start to pivot to NFTs. So some of these projects have worked out well. Uh, some of them have leveraged NFTs to really bootstrap uh, their adoption. So one example. Uh, was like Hashflow, for instance. Uh, they worked with a project called Project Galaxy to issue NFTs for uh, loyal users, and they actually 3x their trading volume on their decks. So just as a disclaimer there, I, I'm an angel in Hashflow, and uh, our Spartan did invest in Project Galaxy. 
Um, but for a lot of the other examples, uh, I think founders tend to chase the next shiniest thing, especially as, as you say, right, the tectonics, uh, tectonic plates of crypto start shifting. Uh, founders feel like they have to chase the next shiny thing. And that's usually a mistake because um, chances are you're not as passionate about that market. You're not as well-versed as your competitors because you're just kind of chasing the next hype. Um, and then, you know, within six months, the, the, the tide change, changes again and you find yourself chasing the next shiny thing without having built anything in this current vertical. So uh, we really advise founders to find that one vertical they're really, really excited about and they're passionate for and they are actually mission-oriented um, and just stick to it. Um, and you can obviously pivot models or business models within the same vertical, but uh, try not to chase the next um, narrative because chasing trends is always bad for, I think, both investors and founders. Interesting. Do you think uh, in the next cycle we'll see uh, pre uh, trends that we deem right now to be dead um, come back again? Like, will we see another DeFi summer? Will we see another NFT summer? Will it rhyme? Or will you, do you think there are going to be new verticals that come along? Yeah, so I think I, I think when it comes to um, these, I, I guess previously during DeFi summer we saw a lot of speculation in DeFi, right? We saw a lot of just anonymous food theme farms pop up and people just earning thousand percent APY every day. Um, so I, oh, I don't have a strong days. view about whether that will come back. Yeah, those were mm -hmm. some crazy days. I don't have a strong view about whether they will come back. I do think crypto is deeply cyclical. Every uh, few years, you know, we get a massive uh, bullish kind of uh, cycle. But over time, you need more and more capital to drive Bitcoin prices higher and higher as the market cap grows. So I do think the volatility should dampen over time in the uh, kind of larger assets. But we might still have pockets of just extreme speculation and euphoria with like lower cap assets. I think that will always happen. Uh, in terms of whether these verticals will come back in terms of adoption, I do think they will. I'm long-term incredibly bullish on DeFi. We recently did an interview on BlockCrunch with the founder of Maple, Sydney Powell, um, where we talked about whether DeFi could have prevented the uh, 3AC blow-up. Um, and I think the answer is resounding yes, because of the transparency where everybody can see exactly what's happening versus the, op uh, the opaqueness of the credit desks that we saw um, which led directly led to the demise of 3AC and the blow up of so many firms. Um, so I am very uh, bullish on the value proposition of the transparency and the centralization of DeFi. I do think that will come back. NFTs, I do think you know we're, we're going to see a resurgence as well. I also think some narratives that have been overlooked, like DAOs, where you know everyone is bearish on DAOs right now, um, and also <laughs> um, you know social Web three. I, I do think there will be things that happen there. We're already seeing um, nuggets of development happen. I think it's incredibly early. Maybe next cycle we'll see something happen. Maybe not. But uh, over the, the long-term horizon, I, I am confident something will happen there. I see. So Sam Kazimane, founder of Frax, is on your list of angel collectives. Um, so here's that. Here's that. So the question is, do you have a thesis for decentralized stablecoins? Yeah, that's a great question. So we are actually one of the early investors back at Spartan uh, in Maker. Um, we're huge fans of MakerDAO and we, we, we were minting DAI back when um, the UI was still, you know, incredibly bad. So it was, a, you know, individual transaction for every single click. You have to kind of approve every single transaction. Um, and that's before they, they have this current kind of smooth UI. Um, I do think there is a strong need for a decentralized stablecoin, um, but it has more um, headwinds than it does have tailwinds, just especially after the UST blow up. I think trust in decentralized stablecoins have really been eroded. So a lot of people are flocking to um, 
you know, regulated type of stablecoins like USDC. And that creates a feedback loop where USDC or USDT becomes more and more liquid and these kinds of centralized stablecoins becomes less liquid. So I do think they need, decentralized stablecoins need to find a unique way to bootstrap uh, besides just trying to compete directly in the same arena as like USDC and USDT. So I don't think we're going to see, you know, die pairs on Binance overtake the liquidity or volume on USDT or USDC pairs. But I do see maybe DAI being integrated into way more DeFi protocols or way more games than uh, than USDT and USDC in the future. So I do think stablecoin teams need to think hard about distribution. I don't think it's uh, I don't think it's as much of a technical problem as it is a BD problem. Um, so, you know, teams that we're watching very closely, obviously Frax, uh, we're really excited about all the integrations they're doing with DAOs and DeFi. Uh, Maker, I do think their model is probably by far the most secure, even though it caps um, uh, scalability a little bit. They're doing some interesting work in the real world asset arena that I think can expand their TAM. Um, so, yeah, I, I'd say those are the two projects that I'm excited about. It's interesting that um, Aave, if I'm correct, has recently proposed to launch their own uh, decentralized yield generating stablecoin. I think Defiant reported six days ago that um, Curve Finance is also working on a stablecoin. And on Solana and on Avalanche, you see all these cousins of uh, Maker spring up here and there. You see Hubble, you see Yeti and so on. So... I suppose there are a couple of questions that we can explore here. I suppose the simplest one is that whether you think um, we'll see the space of decentralized stables coins uh, being crowded out, um, whether there will be a a kind of eutrophication process as more and more people want to build uh, something like uh, like decentralized stable coins. I suppose the second, a more more, deeper question would be like, if you take a look at Frax's protocol, they have these beautiful little contracts called algorithmic market operations, where they monitor the um, collateral ratio of the um, of the Frax uh, token with respect. To, so they monitor collateral ratio of the collateral with respect to um, their uh, their tokens. So so they they take a look at the collateral and the Frax shares, and they, they calculate the room that they can use to mint, and then they just directly mint that uh, Frax into protocols that can generate them yield, etc. Right, but the issue here it seems that if you mint money into Curve or you mint money into Ave to get yield, Ave and Curve can just use their own yield to back their own stable coin, which is exactly what is going on. So everybody seems and so. It seems that you're, um, so the first problem here is that uh, Frax has to compete with a, has to work with a partner that is competing with him. And the second problem is that as these protocol, uh, and as Aave or Uniswap, I can't remember which one, proceeds to build an NFT marketplace, these protocols seems to be increasingly uh, fusing hitherto separate verticals together. So every, they're building out everything. So... What do you think is the um, space going forward? Will there be a shakeout and, or would, do you think there will still be a multitude of stable coins hanging around? Yeah, so I think there are a few questions in there. I think that's an interesting point about the AMO for Frax. Um, well, first of all, to answer your first question, whether I think there will be several stable coins hanging around, I think that will probably um, be more power law driven in the long term. So we already kind of see that, right? So Tether right now, I think it's like 60 billion type of uh, market cap. And then USDC is probably like 50 or so billion. 
uh, Binance is probably like 20 or so billion, and Frax is 1 billion. And then you have a long tail of just like 20 or so stable coins that are in the um, 20 to maybe $200 million market cap range. So we already have a power law. I do think it will get more extreme over time. It doesn't make sense to me that there's like 50 different flavors of USD just floating around. It's not good for liquidity and it's harder for integrations. It's confusing to developers as well. Um, so that's number one. Uh, number two, in terms of how I think the space would shake out, um, I think you make an interesting point about the uh, the point about a the AMO competing with Aave itself. Um, I do think that we have seen this issue before with a lot of DeFi protocols back in DeFi summer, where every DeFi protocol is starting to look like a neo bank. They're all verticalizing into creating different um, products across the stack. So one example is like one inch, right? Uh, as an aggregator at the top layer, they verticalize uh, one layer down into creating their own decks as well, a community swap. Um, and uh, I think at one point there were talks that, uh, you know, Gem, the aggregator was going to, you know, verticalize into creating their own marketplace as well. And we, there's so many examples of just verticalization. I do think it will continue to happen. But at the same time, um, if you look at examples of projects that have tried to verticalize and build out the entire stack, there are not that many extremely successful cases. I do think that it pays for teams to stay within the core competency and build out um uh, you know, what, what uh, focus on the one product that, that their team is really great at and really lean into the composability of DeFi and plug into others versus trying to just own the entire layer of the stack. That being said, you know, I don't think, think teams will listen to this. I think, um, you know, the upside for being able to capture the entire stack is so high that I do think most DeFi protocols will probably look the same in, you know, 10 years time. They're all going to look like different flavors of neobanks. <laughs> So that's decentralized stablecoins for us. Let's talk a little bit about NFT finance. I understand you're also quite involved in this space. So what's the thesis there? Yeah, so I think this is actually one of the more experimental, experimental spaces. I think core um, use cases like lending or trading are already proven out and they make a lot of sense. Um, so just as a disclaimer, I am an investor in uh, NFT Fi, who is the leading uh, lending market on NFTs by far. So even in a bear market, I think they've hit their all-time high volume month just two months or a month ago as of the time of this recording. So I think those are pretty much proven out. They're very low hanging fruit. It makes sense that if you have NFTs, you might want to sell them or you might want to lend them out. Um, there's some more experimental stuff out there like Putty Finance, which allows you to write a put option on your, uh, on your NFT so that if it falls below a certain strike, you have the right to sell it at... Um, at the strike price. So if you think about it, it's kind of like insurance for your NFTs. Uh, so if you don't want to sell your NFTs, but you're scared that it's going to fall under 10 ETH, uh, then you can you know, write a put option on it. Uh, you can purchase a put option on it. Um, so those ideas, I think, are a little bit more niche, um, a little bit more unproven, but I am definitely keeping a keen eye on that. Um, and then there's a lot of protocols that are trying to do fractionalized ownership. Right. Even mainstream influencers like Logan Paul have their own platform uh, where he's trying to sell this, I think, like six million dollar Pokemon card and trying to fractionalize it. Those I'm very on the fence about still, because I think the entire point of non-fungible tokens is that they're non-fungible. Collectors want to own these entire pieces for, uh, you know, vanity purposes. Maybe they want to flex. Um, I question the. Uh, value of owning a small fraction of an, of an NFTs and I question how big the market is. Um, so that's why whenever a project pitches me, hey, we're going to do fractional NFTs or fractional NFTs of real world assets, like you can buy one hundredth of a Rolex. Uh, I always ask them, you know, how many people in the world wants to own a hundredth of a Rolex? And, you know, they never really have a good answer there. And I think you can see that in adoption in platforms like fractional as well. I don't think it's really taken off as much as people think. 
So those areas, I think, remain. Um, I, I'm still on the fence about them, but definitely keeping an eye on them. I definitely agree with you in terms of that skepticism towards fractionalized ownerships of NFTs. It makes um, it it hurts my head to think about why I would because the way I think about NFTs is that NFTs are objects, whereas tokens are money, right? So in the metaverse, NFTs are objects; they're things. They are they're literally things. So when you fractionalize ownership of a thing, you're basically share, selling shares on a thing. So that that might make sense, and from an investment point of view. But if I'm like if I have utility of that thing, if I if it is a chair that I want to sit on, or if it's a, a a gun that I need to use in a game, it makes a very little sense for me to think about why would I want to have a, a virtual fractionalized ownership of a gun that I'm owning because I need to use it in a game. So it, it, it hurts my head to think about that. But I definitely think that if um, fractionalization is used as a form of uh, enabling a higher um, in investment, provided that you've solved the uh, reconstitution problem, it would um, very much behave like uh, Masterworks, which is a non-NFT, non-Web3 project that allows you to have fractionalized ownerships of blue chip uh, art, including Andy Warhol and whatnot. I, I learned about this ages ago. So I don't know how they're doing right now. But um, yeah, that's some. It's, some, it's very similar to NFTs. But anyway, let's talk a little bit more about NFTs um, in terms of li the liquidity problem. I think many of these um, um, NFT finance protocols are solving, are trying to solve the, um, the problem of NFT liquidity. And related to that problem is the problem of valuation. How do you value this thing? And um, we can all be armchair philosophers and economists and come up with uh, fancy models to how to evaluate these things, but they may not conform to uh, um, market expectations or how the markets react, and which is perhaps why there are so many um, different ways of approaching it. Do you have uh, particular favorites or um, particular protocols or approaches that you find um, especially interesting? Yeah, this is a great question. I haven't seen a solution that I'm super convinced about. I think mostly we have seen um, kind of market-driven type of uh, solutions so, uh, as one category. So that's like uh, you create some sort of a exchange for people to bid on at a floor price and um, you know you feed that floor price as an Oracle um, price feed into other maybe lending protocols and that's your price feed. And then there's um, you know systems where people stake their tokens and, and vouch for the valuation of uh, of a um, of an NFT. Um, I think Abacus is potentially doing something like that. Um, so I haven't seen either of these really take off yet. And I, I've personally seen founders build. Uh, so actually, uh, I think interesting story is with NFT price floor. Uh, I think it was actually one product that Alpha was incubating before. And the entire idea was that we're going to allow people to bid on the price floor of an NFT. And then we're going to feed that price into different projects as an Oracle. Um, so I don't think adoption was, uh, you know, extraordinary on that product. And I'm not entirely sure why that is. Um, it might just be a liquidity issue. Maybe we need more liquidity uh, across the entire NFT space in order for us to have um, reliable price feeds. But even then, um, I think by virtue of being NFTs, it's going to be hard to replicate the same type of lending protocols on them. Um, so if you look at like how NIF, uh, NFT Fi is designed, they don't have real-time liquidations, right? They're not like uh, a perpetual swaps exchange where if uh, your collateral uh, ratio falls into a certain value, you get automatically liquidated because they know that, first of all, it's going to be very hard to automatically liquidate stuff because there might not be bids 
for your specific NFT at that point. And second of all, as an NFT holder, I don't want to be suddenly um, you know, liquidated because it's not a fungible token. It might be very hard for me to buy it back, right? This the owner of the NFT might never want to sell it again. So it might be a UX issue as well. Why, uh, you know, why these oracles haven't really taken off is because lending protocols don't really need them. Um, so those are my kind of preliminary hypothesis there, but uh, I would love to be, you know, proven wrong. I'd love to see, you know, an oracle that really takes off. Or maybe uh, what we're uh, dealing with is that, uh, like, houses are very illiquid as objects, right? They're very illiquid, but loans on houses, mortgages are, as I understand, they're very liquid and they get, you know, put together and through financial alchemy, they turn into our favorite MBS and CDO and whatnot, right? And those are highly liquid. Perhaps we're looking, perhaps what we need is something like that. And this leads us to the uh, question of composability. So... Um, I suppose there are a couple of ways to go around with this. Like, um, what are some of the most interesting um, instances of uh, NFT finance comp composability? Like, um, how are people composing and how are people building on top of um, existing NFT finance protocols? Yeah. Um, how are people building on top? Well, I guess the most clear case of composability right now is the aggregators like Gem and Genie, where they're plugging into multiple, um, multiple, uh, you know, NFT exchanges and allowing them to uh, aggregate their orders. Mm -hmm. um, I think there are uh, attempts at creating lending aggregators for NFTs as well. Actually, I think we had one pitch for that uh, for our current tangent batch. Um, and then I think the other low-hanging fruit use case we've seen is just NFTs being used across multiple games or metaverses. But most of those are still in like pitch mode. Uh, I, I don't think I've seen a major project where there's like one NFT item that can be used across multiple game worlds just yet. Mm -hmm. That is one of the thesis of uh, of Treasure DAO actually with their with the Magic Token. They did want to power different metaverses, uh, but it's still extremely extremely early uh, in, in this whole kind of metaverse thing. Um, but yeah, I'd be curious if anyone's building any anything that's kind of composing between different NFT protocols, definitely let us know. I think the current way that we're playing it is uh, we're involved in a DAO called Goblin Sacks, uh, which is actually incubated by 1KX. And they are basically just a bunch of people with a pool of capital, and they're trying to uh, accelerate the adoption of NFT fi uh, fi financialization. So they're providing liquidity on like uh, NFT5. They might be providing liquidity on different DEXs as well. Um, I guess that's a cop-out way of saying that, that that's a composability use case because they're, you know, using multiple NFT, uh, NFT financialization uh, protocols. But um, yeah, extremely early days, like I said, we're just exploring here. Yeah, I spoke with uh, Goblin Sachs uh, yesterday and pretty interesting what they're doing. So I'm definitely interested in um, trying out more of these NFT5 uh, protocols myself. I missed out on the whole DeFi summer because I was a wuss, so major regrets there so i'm i'm <laughs> gonna see how what i can do with these protocols and it's also very interesting that you have already have nft5 and then uh you have metastreet uh basically uh taking up all these loans and then reconstituting them and then for and then let other people lend money in a more in a simpler way so that they don't need to click on each of those um nfts and then specify the terms themselves so everything's automated through metastreet and I wonder if there will be further developments built on top of MetaStreet. It's kind of like, um, like, like this is how I understand NFT finance composability. You have one protocol and you have another protocol building on top of that protocol. And you have another protocol building on top of that other protocol that's building on the top of the other protocol. So uh, like NFT Fi and MetaStreet is an example that I can think of. Another uh, 
uh, example I can think of is NFTX and FloorDAO. Uh, NFTX is basically a, a Uniswap kind of thing that treats all the NFTs as ESC20 tokens. And FloorDAO is basically a Olympus built on top of that. So what I wonder is that if you if we are going to see financialization of NFTs, we are going to see all the presuming that we are going to see all the familiar protocols that we have seen in last DeFi summer be rebuilt again on NFT finance. Are we looking at a potential NFT finance summer? I don't know, because I, I don't think we can just map uh, DeFi use cases directly across the NFTs precisely because the NFTs are non-fungible. Like, for instance, I'm quite skeptical of the NFT TX model where they, um, if my memory serves me right, they're basically uh, treating all the NFTs as fungible tokens. So they're basically uh, creating ERC-20 representations over NFTs and uh, they make no distinction between different NFTs. They kind of treat all floor NFTs as the same. Uh, which I think kind of defeats the purpose of NFTs. I want to own like specific pieces of NFTs. That's why I'm more interested in the pseudo AMM model where they are actually trading pieces of NFTs or even just like more, uh, you know, traditional order book type of models like LooksRare or, you know, uh, OpenSea or X2Y2 or what have you. Um, I do think the space tends to reason by analogy a bit too much. They see something that works maybe in Web2 or something that works in another vertical before and they immediately want to copy and, you know, try to attach a new narrative to it. And I understand it because, um, you know, this space is extremely narrative driven, but I'm skeptical or I should say cautiously optimistic that there might be financial markets that spin up on uh, NFTs. I think at least for trading and lending that much is proven. But everything else, you know, when it comes to Olympus building on top of a uh, ERC twenty version of NFTs, I'm quite skeptical of that. That seems so. very reasonable. I think um, we should talk a little bit about the coming cycle in terms of new verticals. Um, what do you think might be the next big thing in crypto? So we have seen NFTs, we have seen finance, we have seen talks of uh, music, gaming, um, social tokens. Um, some of them have been materialized. Not all of them have been materialized. What might be the next big thing? I'll name a couple of um, potentials here and see how you feel about them. So, for example, decentralized science, uh, privacy, uh, cash, uh, and network states, shall we? <laughs> so what might be some new verticals? Uh, yeah, I think those are all interesting ones. Um... I think what we're seeing right now is a, the space seems to, I think one of the um, common ties between all of the narratives that have happened before is that they all have something to do with ownership, right? So people want to own their own money. People want to, uh, you know, do stuff on DeFi and then people want to, you know, own their assets and, and, uh, you know, own their NFTs for real. So I do think the next big narrative that catches on will probably have something to do with ownership as well. Um, so maybe that's DAOs, maybe maybe that's something to do with Web3 Social. I'm currently leaning towards Web3 Social being something that could take off because we're already seeing some efforts in building the pipes for this, at least. So Lens Protocol being started by Stani, um, you know, Project Galaxy, as mentioned before, we recently did a 10-page report on them for our blockchain VIPs about the credentialization system. And there was actually quite a few of these protocols building that. And we see like pretty, um, I, I guess, subpar attempts at cracking Web3 social, but I think they're heading towards the right direction, right? So things like Peep ETH, which was um, this OG version of um, decentralized Twitter, didn't really work out because you have to pay gas for every tweet. <laughs> um, and then BitCloud didn't really work out because they were, you know, 
very exploitative of your privacy. <laughs> but I do think this idea of like some representation of a human being or of an enterprise um, and allowing for community ownership in that, you know, in, in that person's resources or that person's enterprise is something that that's going to take off. And we're going to, we have already seen, I think the proto version of this um, with NFTs. And in, initially we thought it was going to happen with social tokens, but turns out no one wants like fungible tokens <laughs> of a human being. They want NFTs that have artistic value as well. So we already see this. And uh, one of the, my favorite interviews I did on block crunch is with my favorite band growing up called Avenged Sevenfold. And they issued their own NFTs to their fans. Um, and each NFT is unique, but it uh, it represents your ownership stake in their community. So you get airdrop free tickets to their show. You get invited to the parties. You get to, you know, maybe jam with the guitarist and so on. Um, I think all of those are good signs that some sort of Web3 social thing is coming. But I don't have a strong, you know, thesis on what that looks like. I much prefer for uh, founders to kind of tell me the answer and hopefully choose to work with me as well. Amazing. So... Um, let's talk a little bit more about the coming bear and how you uh, try, how you would try to weather through it. So many great investors and traders have spoken in length about the first priority as a trader or investor is well to survive. Well, they they often say, well, live your entire life trade, live your entire trading life using the Kelly criterion, size of well and appropriate, et cetera, et cetera. So speaking today is probably um, like a um, couple of weeks, I think a couple of weeks ago, uh, Sam SPF himself said, look, there does not seem to be any um, major reasons why there would be cataclysmic collapses going forward. He's not saying that it's going to be blue skies ahead, but he's not he doesn't seem that there to be he does not think that there are thing uh, there are things ahead that could cause cataclysmic collapses that we have seen in say for example february when ukraine was invaded and so on right so i felt um so how do you discipline yourself in the uh, as a trader and as an investor how do you discipline and control your mental framework and don't fomo don't fund yourself and don't get too high or too depressed about your trades and your investors investments how do you control yourself and um, pace yourself yeah definitely and uh i i guess i preface this by saying that spf is obviously a much 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 better trader than i'll probably ever be so uh, i think i i probably uh you know i think his opinion carries a lot more weight here um but in terms of how I manage it personally, um, I think having been through the first cycle in 2017 and seeing basically everything almost trend towards zero and there being obviously like almost no single product that has mainstream usage besides exchanges um, was a very terrifying experience because there was a real chance that it could all go to zero. Whereas this time we actually saw mainstream uptake of DeFi and NFTs and now inklings of social and way more institutional capital willing to pay the salaries of developers in this space. I think the probability of the space absolutely going to zero is much, much, much lower this time. So um, I have much more conviction in investing in long term. Uh, for me, I kind of just like to zoom out from the volatility and try not to participate in zero-sum trading games. I know a lot of VCs, um, a lot of traders that masquerade at VCs out there love to trade a lot. And, um, you know, the VCs, VC bets for them are almost just like call options, right? They're just lottery tickets. Uh, they siphon some of the profits into, uh, into venture investments, and hopefully one of them takes off. But they actually don't really care about any of the companies. They never provide any support, and there's way too many cases of that. So I hope to be 
you know, the investor that I would want to work with if I'm, if I'm a founder, which is, you know, investor that's able to focus on the long term. Um, so obviously the realistic constraints is, uh, you know, capital constraint. At one point, you know, I might deploy all my capital. I would need to make some capital. So we still need to participate in liquid markets a bit just to kind of generate um, the return to fund some of our investments. Uh, but for those, you know, I also tend to be a bit longer term. So I don't try to, you know, scalp intraday or anything like that. Uh, I tend to invest with at least, you know, six month horizon for my trades, uh, uh, sometimes maybe shorter if it's a catalyst driven thing. But um, we did focus a lot on that back in my previous job uh, because we did have a liquid hedge fund by mandate. But personally, now that I manage my own capital, um, you know, I'm doing much less of that. How does one apply to Tangent for funding and what should they do to prepare for the application? Yeah, so you can reach out to any one of us mentors. Uh, all of us are on our website, tangent.ventures. Uh, typically, we do receive uh, uh, applications in batches just to make it easier for us to filter through. But we're actually a rolling batch, so we don't have a fixed cohort like you have to You have to be a part of a cohort this time or you'll never get involved. Um, I think the best way to get involved is to get a referral from maybe a, one of our mentors or a founder or an operator that any one of our mentors know or have worked with before, or maybe a fund that we've co-invested in with before. Um, that is probably the best way to get All right. Involved. Well, fantastic. Thanks. Thanks a lot, Jason, for coming onto the podcast. I'm sure that our uh, listeners and the audience found this fantastically uh, informative and educational. And actually, yeah, I forgot about the uh, disclaimers. I but then again, this is purely educational, not financial advice, et cetera, et cetera. Don't invest because of this, do your own research. Well, and of course, um, if you like this content, please do follow Jason on his uh, podcast and on and follow him on his um, Substack, which is of amazing quality. Absolutely amazing. Well, thank you very much, Jason, for coming on to the podcast. We'll just see you next time. Thank you.